The eyes to the left. I'm Dan Bloom. And I'm Mikey Smith. And this is a special edition of the Eyes to the Left Mirror podcast with Lord John Bird, the founder of the Big Issue magazine. Uh, welcome. Would you tell us just quickly a, a potted history of your life and how you ended up here sitting in your office in the House of Lords, for those who don't know as well? Um, well, in my maiden speech, which I made two and a half years ago, um, I said a lot of people asked me how I got into the House of Lords, and I said by lying, cheating and stealing, uh, which is very true, because not that I was doing that just before I got into the House of Lords, but if I hadn't been blessed by the intervention of the state in the form of the prison service and the juvenile court system, I would have sunk like a stone um, and would have probably remained a kind of petty thief and, uh, um, you know, antisocial sort of bloke. Um, and what happened was that through a series of interventions, uh, I got, every time I got banged up for shoplifting, stealing cars, housebreaking, embezzlement, receiving money under false pretenses, a, a number of people have said I'm still doing that, but I think maybe in Parliament <laughs> there are some people who could be accused of that, but we won't go there. Um, so every time they would teach me something. So I learned to read and write properly in a boys' prison down by London Airport. I learned the arts of, you know, doing a bit of brickwork and a bit of honest labour. Uh, in another institution, I picked up some of the rudiments of printing, which later on gave me a trade which I practiced for about 30 years. Um, so every time I got nicked, I would be improved because in those days, um, the idea was that you locked people up and you converted them to whatever was necessary to stop them going out robbing old ladies' handbags or whatever, was the, whatever they were doing. So there was a sense of reformation a sense of um, rehabilitation and I was very fortunate, very blessed to be a part of that in the 50s and 60s. Um, so I got here by lying, cheating and stealing, um, which then led on to, uh, led on me, me to get rid of a lot of the baggage that I had as a member of the underclass where I was taught to not like black people and not like Jews and not like English people uh, because my family were kind of London Irish. Um, and I got rid of all of that by becoming a Marxist, Engelist, Leninist, Trotskyist when I was hiding from the police at the age of 21 in Paris where I met a hawk bourgeois Trotskyist who was so drop-dead gorgeous that <laughs> I converted from being some kind of small-minded defender of the British Empire into being an international socialist, which I remained and have remained in some form or other ever since. Okay, so you, you very recently, uh, congratulations, had uh, your first bill um, pass with flying colours uh, through the House of Lords. That's the, um, uh, the creditworthiness assess um, assessment bill, is that right? The, yes, the credit, yes. And just sort of take us through briefly what, what that's designed to do. Well, 
what happens if you get a mortgage um, and you go to a credit agency, or we don't actually go to them, you go to Carfarn Warehouse to buy something, or you go to a, morg a mortgage, a, a, a lender, yeah. and you say, right, I want this. They'll say, great, who are you? Um, what do you own? You know, are you owner or a renter? And then they pass your information on to a credit reference agency who will then assess whether or not you are a risk or the degree to which you are a risk uh, of repayment, uh, failure to repay. So therefore your reference level, your, your number so to speak, would be low if you had what they call a thin file, which is they had very few records on it. But if they had a fat file, which is you held a mortgage and you'd borrowed from there, they'd say, oh yes, this person's a good risk uh, because they've uh, took risk, you know, they've took, um, uh, they've took out credit uh, before and they've repaid it. So therefore you get a high number and you pay less for your credit. Right. Now, if you are, the poorer you are, the, the less of a fat file, the less you borrowed through John Lewis and car phone warehouse and all those people, the less you have in the form of a mortgage, uh, any evidence like that, then you're, you're going to have a low rate. And up till now, the lenders, the, the sorry, the, the credit reference agencies have not included people's rent. Now, there are, there are I think in the region, 13 million people You'll have to check on that. Uh, 13 million people who rent, and most of those will not be able to use the fact that they pay their rent regularly. They won't be able to use that as a reference that will enable them to climb up the ladder. So they are being penalised because they're not property owners. One of the things that strikes me about some of the things you've said is that you, you see debt differently from a lot of other politicians. Mm. Um, you've talked about it as borrowing from the future. Yeah. Whereas, I, I think a lot of other politicians would say it's probably quite a good, people for pe a good thing for people of limited means to not get themselves into debt. Why, why, do, you th why do you think you think about that differently? Well, there's, there's two kinds of things going on there. One is, I don't think it's good idea for people to get into debt. I don't think it is. But I also recognise the fact that if you actually want to do certain things in life, you have to borrow tomorrow. Mm. And actually the whole of the capitalist system is based on borrowing tomorrow. I have always believed in the opportunity that borrowing creates, because what it means is that you, you can enjoy your life better now on the basis that in future you will be able to pay off at a particular rate. I've just bought a super duper sofa which cost 1500 quid uh, and my wife being a canny lass has got it at 40 pounds a month um, uh, over four years without any, uh, any um, interest. Now that's a really interesting thing, but you can only do that if you're in mortgages and all that sort of stuff. So let's bear in mind, it is wrong to borrow money you can't pay back. I mean wrong, I'm not talking morally, I'm, I'm talking to yourself. 
and it can impede your development. But borrowing money to do things which are more than day to day, that's when it gets interesting. That's when, for instance, you borrow £5,000 for the bank to start a window cleaning business, or you borrow £5,000 for the bank to get some uh, uh, IT equipment so that you can teach yourself to you know, make websites or things like that. All that sort of stuff that, that you have to, in a way, always borrow the future. There is also this kind of argument that, that credit is some kind of um, terrible moral thing. I mean, this is kind of Margaret Thatcher thing. Mm. It's very strange that when she came in in 1979, the average amount of money owed by people was something like half of their annual wages. But by the end of the period, this is a woman who hated debt, or went on about hating it. Most people owed something like three times their annual wages. Mm. So that big growth of consumerism, that, uh, that the growth of the Amazons, the growth of all those things, the growth of the Costa Coffee things, it's all because of the enormous emphasis that's been put on, on, uh, on borrowing. And in fact, if you didn't have those things, then you'd have a much more, you know, there wouldn't be 300 cheeses to choose from in Waitrose or Tesco's. You wouldn't be able to, you know, have the kind of almost imitation aristocratic life we all like to have on a Friday and a Saturday night um, when we go out to enjoy ourselves. The last 30 years or so, people, particularly in the Commons, haven't talked a lot about renting. They've talked more about home ownership and, and all this. Do you think this is a bill that had to come from the Lords? Can you ask that again? Um, so, so the government, particularly MPs, particularly in the Commons, they talk about home ownership. They talk about how you know they want to create conditions where people can buy homes. Now, as you said, there's, there's potentially 13 million people renting, um, and that doesn't seem to be something that the government, particularly in the Commons, is interesting interested in spending a lot of time on, or, or as much time as they they do talking about. Home ownership. Well, do, do you think that's a problem? Do you think this? Is I think it is. A, I think it's in a problem because every government since the Second World War has been aspirational, which means we're going to leave office, and the people are going to be in a better condition mm. than when we started. And overall, most people have risen up the ladder in terms of a better quality of life. Most most people, not all people, in fact. As we know by Brexit, there's an enormous amount of people who are, who are called the left behinders, mm. uh, who have not done particularly well. But on a, on average, you know, the governments have been able to say, well, you know, there was less of something and there's more of something. But I think the government, I, I think the real problem with the government is all government is largely a struggle to tread water. It is nearly always a struggle to try and make ends meet. It's nearly always a struggle to balance the fact that there are people in the political parties who totally and utterly disagree with the government itself or the opposition itself. So you've got people who are moving around 
um, doing their kind of political finagling and all sorts of stuff like that. So 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 every government is like a is like a conductor with an orchestra, and they've got to kind of keep everything going. Keep the you know Cameron had to keep the uh, Euro skeptics and the Euro uh, phobes or whatever whatever the opposite is. I don't know. Uh, had to keep everybody. It, it was a bit like a a bit of a struggle. So that's where the the, the referendum came out. But but the point is, uh, I don't know that governments ever stop and think, hang on, what is going right and what is going wrong? And they never do a kind of audit. Now, in my opinion, that's one of the reasons why governments are particularly bad at preventing things happening. So, for instance, if you look at the uh, look at the um, the glory of the NHS. The glory of the NHS is that it struggles to provide a, a, a relatively good and sometimes a, an excellent and sometimes a, a stroke of genius service and it does all these sorts of things. But the point is that it is never ever, they've never really grasped and the government has never grasped the incredible opportunities that were presented in 1948 to create a, uh, a body of people, the public, who were looking after their own health, who were, who were eating the right food, getting the right exercise. When I, I was born just after the Second World War, and when I went into school at the age of 51, in 1951, there was these posters all over the place. We spent hours and hours and hours and hours exercising, running around here, running around there, all inspired by the, the NHS, the posters and the like. Then they gave us milk, then they gave us cod liver oil, and then they gave us orange juice, mm -hmm. and they made us drink water. Mm -hmm. And he, he, we were this, in the slums of Notting Hill, where, which had the highest infant mortality rate than anywhere in Britain, but they were looking out for us. And actually, my generation, just after the war, has tended to be more solid because of that. But unfortunately, then the rules changed and people got more, oh, you know, I'm not going to look after my health, I'm going to eat this, I'm going to do that. And there was a lot of prosperity. And then, of course, you've got this terrible reality now that if you are poor, you cannot afford to eat healthily. Mm. So therefore, because you are poor, because you're on long-term unemployment, or you're on sick, or you know, or, or you're in a, a, a zero-hours contract, uh, and you're getting the average wage, you—it is impossible for you to rush down weight rows and stuff your your basket full of good middle-class fodder. You can't do that, and therefore you've got this terrible situation today, where we are allowing people who desperately need our, uh, our help hand up to get them out of that situation and we're not concentrating on that. We are concentrating on the Brexit issue, we're concentrating on, on uh, finding out, uh, trying to destroy a government but not destroy a government, destroy an opposition but not destroy an opposition. I have never seen such a vexious load of people and I heard a wonderful thing the other day at a conference where a, uh, a woman said, why is it that you go into a card shop and there's a big 
thing that you can buy for, for, and put on your wall and it says, dance as though nobody's watching. And then, and, and then poor old Theresa dances as though nobody would want to watch. <laughs> we start taking the mickey over. I've seen so many. And, and I mean, I mean, why don't we, why don't we grow up and, and get serious about politics rather than looking for the, the kind of problems that, that, uh, that, that I mean, May has her problems. Uh, let's deal with those. Let's not personalise it. And anyway, so just you can tell I go on a bit. Well, <laughs> uh, just a, a quick point. When you're talking about food poverty and how you grew up in the slums, but you still had your cod liver oil and your food, do you think things are worse in some ways now than they were in the fifties for you? Well, there were there are all sorts of things which are different. Most of the people who worked in those days did very very kind of heavy heavy lifting and heavy work. So you took in all the, the garbage, all the rubbish, all the cheap food. There was not the enormous amount of sugar that there is in food now because it was only really in the 70s and the 80s that the American uh, food um, lobby realised if you bang a load of sh sugar in all sorts of things, whether it's meat, whether it's cereal, it actually makes it more compulsive. So if you actually were to compare the cereals that we ate in the early eight, in the early 60s or the 50s to now, they weren't soaked full of that d terrible um, destruction, which is sugar. And of course, we had sugar in our tea, but, but sugar was like gold dust, and you were very, very careful. And you actually often would pop round to people and say, can you, can you spare us a you know, a cup of sugar and all that, because it was... It, but but also, people were working, people were running around, they weren't in sedentary work, they weren't... So so there was a kind of off-balance. Uh, we don't have that now, and we don't have... And what we've got now, we've got people who are stuck on social security, which is not social opportunity. If it was, it would be totally different. And the quality of their lives are harmed by the fact that they're, they're eating stuff which is so loaded down with salt and sugar. Mm. And I personally believe that uh, what we should be talking about is reinventing the welfare state so that we can iron out all of those anomalies that have happened over the last 70 years. I want to move quickly on to your specialist subject, of course, homelessness and about a year ago, you warned that we were facing the worst winter for uh, rough sleepers and homeless people for 20 years. What about this winter? Is it going to be worse? Or do you think things have got better? Um, it has, well, I mean, there, there, there's a number of things that, that I am very privileged to know about. I know about the, um, about the homeless organisations that do lift people off the streets. And there, there are lift. There's a, you know, eighty to eighty-five percent of people who fall into the homeless category will be lifted up and put in places of safety and given and and given uh, uh, given some form of transitional housing, some form of temporary housing, which which may and often does move to something more permanent. But there is that 15, 10, 15% of people who are ending up on the streets. And they are, 
The government has put money into that, and God bless them. Previous governments have put money into that, but the driving force behind all of this arrival on the streets is the lack of local support uh, because of the problems that you have with with um, uh, um, with sorry, I forgot the bloody word uh, with austerity. Yeah, forgive me, forgive me. It's okay. <laughs> what a word! You can't forget that. It's, we're surrounded by it. So, so therefore, you've got the the problem of austerity, which is the driving force. I was in uh, Leicester, just an example. I was in Leicester a few about a year ago. And the council had been forced, I mean, because they have budgetary problems, to cut um, a 50-bed unit. And how many people were sleeping in, in the streets? Uh, that, the counted the weekend I was there, 55. So you've got this kind of, it's not always arithmetically like that, but if you don't have those provisions, of course the real problem, which is why I find governments and politicians suspect of all political complexions is that they are always dealing with today. They haven't, they didn't do the work 10 years ago that they could have done, or 20 years ago. When Mr. Blair came in, he, he spent an enormous amount of, there's a lot of, about Blair that we should really thank God for because uh, he did a few wrongs over international wars, but he did some interesting stuff. One of the most interesting things, I think, was to give every born child 500 quid or something. Because it was like, that's your stake in... Yeah. in, in, in I, I think it's we child need, tax credits. Yeah, yeah. We need stakes. We need to feel that we belong as a community. Yeah. And I think that... And, and my children, I've got, I'm, in spite of appearances, I'm a very young father, so I've got an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old who've got, you know... I don't know, four or five thousand pounds banged up there, which which will come very, very useful when they have to pay, you know, a hundred thousand pounds a year to go to college or whatever it is by the time they get there. Forgive me. Yeah. So you say people are investing, but a lot of people say that they're just seeing more people on the street now than they can remember. You've probably got a more a longer memory than the two of us. Is does that Combined. you know <laughs> does yeah. that is that your Thought. Are you, did, can you see more people sleeping on the street yeah. than you did before? But you see, you, you've actually, you've got, you see, it's very difficult to talk about the history of, of homelessness because the history of homelessness changed radically uh, through two things that happened. One of them was in the early 60s when the police, uh, uh, well, really, the magistrates refused to uh, put people into prison for rough sleeping, no fixed abode, or for begging. Um, and therefore, they said, we're not taking it, because they were putting people away for a month, three months, and then they were back, so there was this kind of thing. And they said, look, this has got nothing to do with justice. So therefore, they stopped persecuting or prosecuting people on the streets. And that really is where you then move into a different situation where uh, the problems that cause people to fall into homelessness then started to be displayed in the streets. Then you had uh, the 1965 Rent Act, which was brought in very quickly by Mr. Mr. Harold Wilson, which 
put an enormous pressure on social housing because what it did was it stopped landlords being able to throw people out and it stopped landlords from being able to charge all these rents. So they brought in this rent tribunal. I was very fortunate to be right in the middle of that. And I was one of those lucky persons who could um, uh, say, I'm not paying this rent because it's too high, and then having to go to a tribunal, which might take nine months, by which time I'd moved on somewhere else. I'd pay. So, so uh, there was a lot of investment taken out of private housing, which put an enormous pressure on on socialising, which we've never got over. So actually, what Harold Wilson wanted to do was stop rackmanism and slummery and all that. But, you know, he used the wrong tool and he did it in a particular way. So we have to be very, very careful. So those were the two real things that changed homelessness. But then, oh, of course, Maggie comes along in 1985 in, it, it, you know, um, it, it, in um, imitating the Americans who from the 50s had been closing down their mental health institutions, uh, asylums, and letting the homeless, uh, let the, the, the mentally ill become the mentally homeless. Um, so you had that enormous, so those three things over the last 50 or 60 years have changed homelessness remarkably. So when you go down onto the streets today, there are people who would not have been on the streets if we had a mental health system that worked. And I meet so many homeless people who I would say are ill. And I would say the vast majority are either ill when you meet them or when they're new enough, they are ill by the time the week, the month is out because mental illness grows out of, of deprivation. Um, so we are, in a, in a nutshell, because uh, I know you only deal in nutshells, uh, it's worse. Uh, there is no joined up thinking. Um, I am the, of the opinion, because I'm, uh, I'm not liberal minded about poverty, I'm of the opinion that we should uh, stop people sleeping on the streets and stop people begging and create, recreate a therapeutic community system where we take people to a place where we sort out the reasons why they are ill. The streets are an extension of the National Health Service. They are an extension of the local hospital. They are not just places where you just kept down because you've got a few problems and you, know, you can't pay your rent and all that. It's deep and it's profound. The National Health Service is having to pick up the tab of homelessness. You go to St Thomas's Hospital and you meet the amount of disturbed people who are living transitional lives, either sofa surfing, either sleeping on the streets, or either living this really grim existence where nobody has invested in their future. Just lastly, in 2012 you said politicians were, I'm going to read your quote now, they are all failures. I've never met any one of them that's impressive. Well, first of all, you're a politician now, of course, mm. technically. We're sitting in your House of Lords office. You're wearing your House of Lords tag, and you joined the Lords three years ago. But have you changed your mind? Because you've seen a lot of politicians up close now. Do you still have a suspicion of them, or have they convinced you? Well, uh, no, I mean, the reason I came into the House of Lords and started applying about that time, because it took about three years to, 
to jump the many fences because I'm a volunteer. I'm not. I, I nobody shone a light on me and said, John Bird, you are needed in the House <laughs> of Lords. Uh, I applied. It took two or three years, uh, and I was finally accepted in 2015, and then came in in 2016. It was ra largely because of that realization that these poor, poor, poor boys and girls in both houses, largely the government are really treading water. They are not remembering uh, how difficult it is to live on the streets and to live down there because they've got too many other things to remember. And they're rushing around like blue rear-end flies from one place to another. And we have to invent politics. I have come here for the most revolutionary program for British politics imaginable. It is not about getting um, Corbyn in and getting, uh, um, getting uh, May out. It's not about anything like that. It's about saying, why is it that you've got all these wonderful projects, all these people thinking outside the box, but the box itself is full of lamed up thinking, is full of really terrible forms of legislation that don't free people up and develop them. When we fail 37% of our children at school, and I was one of those, but fortunately I had, I had my alma mater was, the, was Her Majesty's Prison Service. It's not there anymore. You go in now, you go in bad, you come out worse. You go in and you sink like a stone. If you haven't come out of prison now with a number of other skills, like how to get into different kind of houses, how to steal different kind of cars, and you, you've been asleep for the whole of your period. It is your university of crime. And really, when the box doesn't work, then however beautiful and thoughtful and kindly and well-intentioned our politicians are, they are treading water. They are, they are putting tomorrow off, and they're only dealing with today. And I was about to write a manifesto when I came into the House of Lords, which was, uh, which, which, which I didn't do because there were other things that happened. It was, it was simply named, uh, do, we, do we have to fight for today again tomorrow like we did yesterday? Because that is the thing, it's all about today, it's all about expediency, it's all about stopgap, it's all about holding fast, it's never about stepping back and saying, hmm, we are the fifth richest country in the world, we have an absolutely vigorous uh, uh, amount of people who can use education, we have a vigorous popul populace, we have, you know, I go into prisons and I'm astonished at their innovation, their ability to innovate. But nobody uses it, so it goes to crime. So it's a, a problem like that. So it sounds like no, you haven't changed your mind. <laughs> no, I haven't. Well, I mean, I feel kind of sorry for them. It's a terrible thing. It sounds very patronised. I think you poor person. You know, you're going to go through hell and have a nice time, and you might you might grasp you might grasp the realms of power, and you might be able to hang on there. But you'll be out the door one day and you'll be looking back and you'll say, what did I achieve? And you'll only be able to deal with the things you've achieved because the things that you might have caused to happen uh, may come back and bite you in the bum. And therefore, what is really important, in my opinion, is we've got to reinvent Parliament. Now, 
people say to me, you know, don't you think you ought to reinvent uh, the House of Lords? I'd love the House of Lords to be reinvented, but I'd like it to be reinvented with the whole of Parliament, not just, you know, unfortunately, governments for years have used the House of Lords as a dumping ground, because what they've done is they've had their MPs, they lose their place, or, or members of Parliament, or members of the government, they lose their place, so they think, what can we do with them? But they're the House of Lords. So, so they've used it as a dumping ground, so therefore it's going to be inefficient. Fortunately, there's quite a number of crossbenchers, people like me, who have been brought in as experts in certain areas, experts in veterinary surgery, mm -hmm. experts in, 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 in social, um, social work, experts in education. So they, in a sense, have kind of countermanded the idea that, that it was a dumping ground because every political party back from the days before political parties were using the House of Lords as a place that you just dump people. And I'm here as a part of the new broom. I'm here, I'm a part of that, I'm a part of what happens in 2016 when a number of people left, right and centre said, we're not going to keep doing it. And I'm here to dismantle poverty. I'm not here to to make the poverty, the, the poor, a bit healthier or, a, no, a bit more comfortable. I'm, you know, getting them out of poverty. Very last thing. You said this isn't just about May out or Corbyn in. Is that something you'd like to see? Um, I'm not really allowed to have any political... You have to park up your political things. But should we say that, that uh, I am always inspired, always inspired, when I find... Uh, new waves of expressions of we're not going to do it the same old way. And if that expression is real, then one would only want to invite it, would one not? How about that? <laughs> we'll interpret from that what we want to. Yes, please. <laughs> Lord Bird, thanks very much. This has been the Eyes to the Left podcast. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at uh, is it eyes to the left? <laughs> uh, yeah, it'll be hashtag eyes to the left. It'll be at Mirror Politics. That's the one. And uh, you can follow all our latest at mirror.co.uk slash politics. The Eyes to the Left 